Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, to make a smarter, Matthew Lizzetti, uh, where this for you on Global Wall Street, Deutsche Bank has just done a terrific job. It's maybe a fractious view with a different view short term versus their view long term. Let's go wicked short to Friday with Matthew Lizzetti, our first real discussion of his jobs report. Matthew, I love what you say. It is a perplexing labor economy. How will this Friday's report be perplexing? Sure. Th- thank you for having me. I think what we've seen over the, the past several months is uh, data data points which are pointing at two different things. We have an economy which, on a number of metrics, look like looks like there's a lot of slack. 7.6 million jobs below pre-COVID. A labor force that's 3.5 million below pre-COVID as well. On the other hand, you have record quits, record job openings. Wages have been firm, uh, and so I think we've been looking for data points to try to resolve these two issues in, in our mind. And I know the Fed is, is certainly looking at, at data points there. <laughs> I don't think we get a resolution this week. We, we expect 700,000 jobs. We expect the unemployment rate to tick down by, by one-tenth, uh, the labor force to pick up a little bit. But I, I think, you know, as Fed officials have said, it's more likely that we have to wait until the fall till we get labor supply coming on fully and, and get a greater resolution of these, these mm-hmm. this real dichotomy that we're seeing in the labor market. That February, before the pandemic, we all looked back at that nirvana of what was billed as a fully employed America. Is that what we're going back to, or are we going forward to something new and different? Look, I, I think there's definitely some things that have changed, and, and probably from a structural uh, sense. And, and the Fed and Chair Powell has, has talked about retirements really picking up, uh, probably on the back of a big pickup in wealth and, and savings that, that households have had there. But in my mind, uh, what we learned from the pre-COVID labor market was we just continually found labor supply. The prime age labor force participation rate continued to trend higher. People coming off disability insurance roles. You know, Vice Chair Clarida at that point was saying that Nehru could be as low as three and a half percent. And I don't think that there's anything from this shock that uh, prevents us from getting back there. If anything, you know, greater workforce flexibility, some of these uh, policies that the Biden administration is looking at should help to lift labor supply. So there is no doubt constraints in the near term on labor supply. But if we look forward by a year, two years, um, I think that we should anticipate that we can get back to that pre-COVID labor market. Matt, some people have made the argument that holding back labor supply, one factor behind that has been the additional unemployment insurance. You make the argument, you find limited evidence that enhanced unemployment insurance benefits were exerting a material drag on aggregate employment. What did you look at, Matt? Sure. So I I know there's been a a lot of uh, work done on this. And what we've looked at is try to look across states, try to look across sectors, and are you seeing labor markets either in, in low-wage states that look like they are, are more constrained because they should be more impacted by uh, enhanced unemployment benefits? Are you seeing low-wage sectors that are also being more constrained? Uh, and you really don't find that. So, for example, leisure and hospitality, we look at, looked at the vacancy yield. And this is the rate at which you're turning job openings into hires. The vacancy yield in leisure and hospitality, which is a low-wage sector, is actually well above a lot of high-wage sectors. Similarly, if you look at across states, it's actually the low-wage states that are really outperforming here. It's, it's the high-wage states that still have uh, a lot of slack or, or well below pre-COVID levels. So in our mind, you know, unemployment insurance benefits, you know, no doubt, I would not deny that it is probably a, a factor for some. But if you look at the big macro stories, uh, in my mind, it's COVID 
and it's really not unemployment insurance benefits. It's the return to school part of the COVID story. So two things happen in September. The additional UI expires and the schools reopen. Hopefully, and everyone gets to go back to school, Matt. Do you think that could be the dominant factor here? Absolutely. I think you have the direct effect of that in, in reopening, which is just getting greater education and employment. But on the other hand, it opens up labor supply to an extent that we haven't seen as of yet. So I, I think in the debates that we have with clients on this, uh, there's, there's a very forceful debate on, on both sides, but, but we all kind of end up in a place where once we get to the fall, as vaccinations have picked up, as schools reopen, uh, as unemployment insurance benefits roll off, all of those things should really lead to a, a lift in labor supply as we get to, towards the fall. Yet we haven't seen as much progress in the labor market as many people had expected. And yes, we have to wait. But at what point will you rethink your, your goals in terms of getting the unemployment rate back down to where it was and frankly, getting the participation rate higher? I mean, what is concerning you and keeping you up at night with respect to this? Yeah, I think the, the lack of response from labor force participation has, has certainly been one of them. Um, you know, the, the trend that we've seen in, in employment gains has been weaker than, than we anticipated. There's an interesting, um, if you look at the non-seasonally adjusted data, we've been printing about 1 million jobs per month on average over, over the past four months, a very steady pace. And Chair Powell noted this, there may just be speed limits on, on how quickly we can rehire people into this economy. And maybe it's 1 million jobs per month on a non-seasonally adjusted basis. Uh, Indeed has some great data looking at a really big pickup in job postings for HR departments. And so maybe this is businesses trying to get around this natural speed limit. Uh, in any event, as if we continue to print those types of non-seasonally adjusted jobs, it'll get a boost over, over the next few months. So I, you know, with the labor demand that we have out there as labor supply does normalize, I anticipate that you know, our, our bullish outlook for the labor market should really be fulfilled as we get towards the end of this year and then as we get into next year. A lot of people talk about the frictions in the labor market as leading to a lot of wage increases. How persistent, how much has the balance shifted back to labor from corporations in terms of demanding higher wages? Yeah, there, you know, I, I think you're seeing different views from different wage numbers. So the Atlanta Fed's wage metrics have actually decelerated in, in a broad way, and, and they're tracking individuals over time. So they're able to control for a lot of different compositional shifts. The average hourly earnings data that we'll get on Friday, it's just skewed by so many compositional issues. They, they don't uh, control for occupation or sectoral shifts. So, so it's really difficult to read too much into those data. We have to wait for the employment cost index to come out each quarter. But, but what I would say there is no doubt you're seeing wage pressures, I think, uh, in, in a number of metrics now, certainly a lot of anecdotes, and labor supply is constrained at this point. But if I go back to what I said before, I'd be very surprised if we go back, you know, if we look forward by a year, two years, and we're still seeing these same constraints there. Uh, I think on, in, on the contrary, we should be back towards a pre-COVID labor market where we are really unleashing significant labor supply. And that I, that I think keeps price pressures in check keeps wage pressures in check as well. So what is your unemployment rate that is a mental tip point? You know, the Deutsche Bank research of Folkerts, Landau, and Hooper worried about inflation out three and four years, and yet a short-term view that's very much different than that. Can we use a tip point of unemployment rate as a signal that we're back to where we're supposed to be? Yeah, and I should be clear, you know, we have a, a baseline view that the inflation jump that this year is transitory, and I think there's good reasons for that. But, you know, we completely agree that the risks are very clearly skewed to the upside, given substantial fiscal stimulus that we've seen, given this regime shift from the Fed. Uh, it's really unprecedented. So I, I completely agree that the risks are to the upside. Specifically to your point, 
you know, it, it, identifying Nehru uh, pre-COVID was almost impossible. As I mentioned, Vice Chair Clarida had said Nehru could be as low as three and a half percent. In fact, we never really found it. Yeah, he in said the that to John, not to me. <laughs> he, he, you know, I, I would agree with that assessment at, at that point in time, which was we never really found it. You know, we tried to do state level analysis. Where could you see a nonlinear Phillips, Phillips curve kick in? And the evidence was you really need to see the unemployment rate drop to very low levels, you know, low three percent, perhaps uh, one percentage point or more below what, what people thought Nehru was. So my takeaway from the pre-COVID economy was we, we did not find Nehru. We, we could not mm -hmm. find, you know, where full employment was. And I think the Fed, that was a big takeaway from their, their policy uh, review that they had, which was you really could get broad based gains. The Phillips curve really flattened uh, and Nehru was probably lower than they always anticipated. So, Matt, let's finish on this. You've just painted this picture of a world that we won't see more clearly until the end of the year, which is basically the fall, my autumn, your fall, September, October time. Why would the Federal Reserve make an announcement on the reduction of asset purchases until they've seen that data? Yeah, so I think there's, there's two things. One, the significant demand that they see in the labor market, record job openings, um, you know, all the different survey indicators give them a lot of confidence that uh, if supply does become unleashed, the demand is there to see substantial further progress in the labor market. So I think that's an important data point. The second is this risk management. And, you know, we agree that there is just substantial upside risk to inflation, even though I, I believe in the, the baseline transitory story. And because there is, you know, a, a process here of you know, tape, beginning the tapering process, drawing down the net zero asset purchases, raising interest rates, given the, the growth outlook, given the labor market outlook, it probably does make sense to start that process. And again, they'll say that it's not tightening, it's just pulling back on some of the accommodation that they have. So I, I think by the end of the year, given our outlook, they, they should start that process. I think they will start that process. Uh, and we have them announcing tapering in December. In December. Okay. Matt Lazzelli with the December call. Deutsche Bank chief, US economist. Joining us now is Mona Mahajan, <clears throat> Allianz Global Investors, senior US investment strategist. Mona, let's just start here. The cyclical trade. Seen some cracks through the month. The banks struggled at one point. The airlines have been struggling over the past 30 days too. Do you want to stick with it? Yeah, you know, generally, obviously, we've had a phenomenal run in the value trade. And we talked about this since November. Um, we've been up. Energy has been up nearly 90 percent. Uh, financials up 50. Industrials up over 30 percent. So, you know, it's been a, it's been a good run. And I think certainly uh, people were anticipating investors were anticipating some of the recovery that we are now seeing in the economy. Um, but as we're standing here today with the tenure again under mm -hmm. 150, uh, when you think about the upside downside on the yield profile, um, if you really think, you know, yields have much more downside to go, then perhaps you step back from the value trade. But if you think that yields now may start to either stabilize or grind higher, given both technical factors and fundamental factors, then I think that there is one more leg in the value trade to come. Um, keep in mind, as we move through this year, as you know, the Fed starts to taper eventually, uh, as the reopening occurs in earnest, uh, that will support the value trade. But as we head into 2022, uh, we are looking at comps that might get a little bit harder for some of the value sectors and comps that get once again easier for some of these growth uh, tech mm. names again. So we do think as the year progresses, 
the more and more interest or there will be more and more interest right. in some of the tech trade. Uh, but for now, we stick with the value. Uh, Mona, American investors like to buy America. They don't want to go un-American. You say go long the un-American European stocks. These are unfamiliar names. ASML, LVMH, we know that's not unfamiliar, unfortunately. SAP, Lindy and Total, the French oil uh, company. Should we be buying European uh, big caps? You know, we think Europe obviously has uh, levered or is levered towards the value trade. You know, a lot of their sectors and indices uh, are long financials, long industrials, you know, a lot of great European industrial companies and long energy. So classic value sectors in Europe right now, combined with a European economy that's also catching up in terms of vaccine rollout, in terms of economic recovery. Uh, that being said, when you look at some of the index performance already year to date, uh, a lot of European indices are in line, if not outperforming the S&P 500. So some of that catch up trade has been had. Uh, but that being said, we do think that as this global recovery is unfolding, uh, investors need to think more global in their portfolios as well. You know, earlier this year, there was a period of what we call U.S. exceptionalism. The U.S. really came out strong uh, in the March timeframe with their vaccine rollout. Uh, economic recovery started in earnest during that time period. Uh, but now we are starting to see this unfold globally. Of course, we're watching the variants, as you guys noted, noted earlier as well. Um, but through the summer months, we do expect uh, some stability in, in not only the European economies, but some of those EM economies that really were lagging. You know, think areas like India, like Brazil, that are now starting to show signs of stability. Their markets are playing catch up as well. And if we resume a softening dollar tre trend, we do think that uh, over time that supports some of the real laggards. Uh, beyond just Europe, yeah. but parts of those EM as well. Mona, there was a lot in there. Let's unpack one point. You said that, that you are watching the Delta variant and how that is spreading. How does that play into your thesis? How much and how closely are you watching that to determine when you perhaps should shift gears? Yeah, you know, it does really seem to be a race between vaccines and variants. And I think here in the U.S., we've done a really good job. I mean, the vaccine rollout uh, perhaps won't hit the 70 percent target by July 4th that President Biden had outlined, uh, but we're getting pretty close. And so in many states, we are now at 70 percent or higher. Uh, we think that's a pretty good situation to be in um, to fight or offset some of the, the growth in the variants. Uh, aside from the variants, the other thing that we're watching closely is the seasonality of this, uh, you know, this um, COVID, I guess, uh, you know, the, the COVID itself. And so, you know, when you think about it, uh, as the September, October months roll around, um, that really could be when we see a surge in cases once more. And so we are, you know, looking at the summer months uh, in line with last year's summer months where we're seeing a plateau in cases. But keep in mind, seasonality is a big factor here as are the variants. These are tail risks in our case, in our view, not really a base case scenario. Mona, always good to see you. Thank you. Mona Mona, thank you. Alliance Global Investor, <clears throat> Senior U.S. Investment Strategist. Now, this is really a joy. We don't do enough on the softs. We talked to Dennis Gartman about red wheat, but we really just don't do enough on the softs. She is expert on the soft commodities. Kona Hake is uh, EDNF man, head of research with just a terrific, a distinguished career uh, in these trends. I want you to discuss, Kona, first, the linkage of your world to Brazil. Why is Brazil so important in getting on board a soft commodity trend? Yeah, it's super important. Um, Brazil is the biggest exporter for coffee, for sugar, 
It's a huge exporter of cotton. Um, you name it, it's massive. So everything that goes on in Brazil, whether it's the currency or whether it's the weather, mm. will have a direct impact on sugar, coffee, and cotton. Yeah, it's and corn and soybeans. These are massive, massive. Um, my my take on your world is you got to get on a trend and stay on the trend as well. What's the most identifiable trend right now in soft commodities that gives comfort to be either long or short? It's very similar to what we're seeing in the general commodity space. So obviously, the reflation trade, the fact that we've had a post-commodity rise in inflationary expectations has led to a boom in commodities. Now, whether we're in a super cycle or not, that's still debatable. But for sure, we are seeing money flowing into commodities. And the soft commodity sector has definitely been a beneficiary to that. So we have seen speculative and investor buying across coffee, sugar, and it helps that the forward curves are in backwardation. So, you know, that's basically suggesting that the markets are slightly tight. And that's helped by the fact that Brazil has been very dry in the first half of the year. And that's really caused some concerns for yields, which just fuels concern. Well, there's a question about the elasticity of some of these soft commodities, a question of how quickly you can plant, how quickly you can compensate for the increase in demand or the, uh, the reduction in supply based on the droughts that we're seeing, not only in Brazil, but also across the United States. What asset classes, what commodities have the least elasticity, are the least capable of being produced quickly to meet the demand? So... I suppose for um, things like soybean and corns, at least you have other countries like the USA and Argentina that can compensate. So if Brazil has a disaster crop, you can look to the USA. But right now we have seen some issues. You know, it's very dry in parts of the US. Um, the weather is turning a little bit better. So corn and soybeans, the rally those in those commodities have come off a little bit. Um, so we wait to see. The nice thing about the way these commodities work is that just when Brazil is exporting, that's when... Um, you know, and then when they finish the export season, that's when the U.S. starts exporting. So you have a nice little supply um, chain across the calendar year. With when it comes to coffee and sugar, you're looking at more sort of the begin, the middle of the year when you start seeing um, harvest. So then, and there really isn't a lot of substitute areas to provide that kind of huge replacement. So we are more concentrated in in the softs as such. But I mean, if I wanted to talk about the demand side elasticity, I mean, we're talking different things now. So for coffee, for example, the pandemic meant that um, lockdown cafes were closed across um, the world, if you like, and people had to drink coffee at home. And now there's a real hope that as lockdowns are lifted, people can go back to outdoor coffee consumption. That should provide a nice little boost there. All right. Well, maybe some people drink more coffee when they go out. Other people, like myself, drink plenty when I'm at home as well. There is a question just more broadly in the entire commodities complex. We've been talking about peak reflation, whether we have reached peak everything and whether that's being reflected in some of the commodity prices easing off where they were earlier in the year. Do you see that consistently around the commodities that are most sensitive to global growth? Um, so the agricultural side, I suppose, is less sensitive to economic growth per se. If anything, you'd say that emerging markets, more of the income is spent on staple food commodities. So it's more about the, you know, as the countries move out of the COVID, 
their demand for basic raw materials is going to be very, very strong. And that is definitely happening. Um, you know, we, have, we are seeing food inflation. And if governments start taking wind of that and they start worrying about food rights, the likes we saw in 2008, mm -hmm. they might want to start importing to start building strategic um, reserves to ensure that they don't have domestic food inflation. So I think, you know, are we at the peak? I would say we're in the middle. We're Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly for some commodities, um, harvests are coming up. That should provide some supply pressure. Right. But generally speaking, I think because interest rates are still so low and the rate hikes by the Fed promised now are now still two years away, people need to put their money in. And I think commodities right now still feel like a good bet. Uh, Connor, the switch to oil, and of course you followed that at Macquarie uh, for years. I don't want you to single point oil out to $100, but do you see an identifiable trend in Brent crude that launches out to 80 and then 85? I think um, the fact that oil has done so much better than even I thought, you know, just a few months ago, suggests that the demand, we have really maybe underestimated the demand. So as more and more countries come out of lockdown, I think that demand can really spike higher. Um, maybe in the US, we've the, slow, mm -hmm. the demand growth from here is going to be slightly slower. We probably need aviation to take off um, for the next leg higher. Right. Um, but at the same time, you, we do know that OPEC is now you know, bringing supply mm -hmm. on, that's the plan. And I think how, if they if they go overboard or if there's more risk of cheating, then I think you could right. start seeing a little bit of a slowdown in the oil price growth. Kona, John from Milan emails in and he says he's probably going to lose money on Germany, England today. What's your single best idea here for people that lose a pot this afternoon on that big soccer game? I mean, if you look the way France is out, Portugal's out, I mean, if that's the same trend, then maybe Germany's going to go. I don't know, but England has a good chance. Kona, I love that. <laughs> that's the best answer we've had all day. That's great. It's unexpected. Kona Hag, thank you very She's much. She's long champagne, I think, is what I heard there. Man head of research. You'd be buying the bottom in France this morning, wouldn't you, Tom? I guess so. I that mean... was just terrible. This is what surveillance is about. We talk to one analyst and go right to another analyst uh, uh, where we can link them together. Ira Jersey on yield and now David George on the outcome for the equity market. And, of course, the banks, his expertise at Robert W. Baird. David George, if we get an Ira Jersey 10-year yield, 2.2%, 2.3%, what does that do to bank equities? Um, if we get that, Tom, good morning. I, I think that it's fair to expect a, you know, if you're going to pin me down to a number, 10 to 20 percent upside for bank stocks, if that's the uh, outcome out of it. In addition to the rate, the rate environment itself, that obviously reflects a, a much, uh, a much stronger uh, macro backdrop as well. So I, that, that undoubtedly would be positive. How do you calibrate the oomph of this one off in share buyback and particularly dividend increase? With a sustained dividend growth, what kind of model do you have for these big banks as they try to figure out the sustained <clears throat> dividend that they will give shareholders? Well, over, you know, over time, we're, we're of the view that most of the big banks, and, and I say this as a, a positive, are going to be very utility-like with respect to how they distribute capital. I, I would expect over the longer term, the three, five, seven-year Time horizon, yeah. you're going to see close to 100% capital return to shareholders, both in the form of, of buyback and dividend. And, and obviously, the, the buyback discussion can be variable depending upon uh, 
movements in the economy, stock price movements, et cetera. But, but I think that the, the, the punchline is that there's going to be very significant capital return out of the financial services industry over the next several years. David, Mike Mayo of Wells Fargo came on the program last week and said that right now with all-in payouts, uh, the yield on these financial stocks will probably equate to something like 8 or potentially even 9% for 2021. How much can people buy these shares for simply the payouts versus the dynamism from a steep yield curve from greater consumer lending activity, things that perhaps we're not really seeing as much? Um, I think part of the investment case is, is clearly capital return, but, but I think buying banks on that alone is, is probably a, a somewhat of a, a frail thesis. I think in order to be very bullish from these prices, and again, to, to kind of give you some perspective, banks are up over 100% over the last 12 months, they're up over 25% on a year-to-date basis. So clearly, there's significant expectations priced into them today. So, so I think that the challenge is from here, um, capital return, from my perspective, is very positive. But it's not enough to, to make a very bullish call for financials from these levels. Uh, I think for, 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 for the group to do well, you need higher rates, you need more loan growth, you need continue to strengthen the capital markets. And, and again, as you said, um, that, that kind of remains to be seen at this point. Okay, let's put the rates uh, picture aside since that's uh, less determined, frankly, is anyone's guess. There is a question about mm-hmm. loan growth. And Allison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence and I were talking yesterday and she said, really the untold story over the past month was from these bank executives saying that actually consumer loan growth is sluggish, that J.P. Morgan Citigroup is actually seeing disappointments in that area, particularly with respect to credit cards. How much have you noticed that? How concerning is that to you? Um, it's not It's not concerning, but it's absolutely a factor. Allison is, is right on, um, as usual. And this la- but basically, in simplest terms, the government stimulus has crowded out loan growth. That's basically, from my perspective, really what's happening here. The, the amount of stimulus has been so significant that it has really um, eliminated the need for many entities and, and consumers, frankly, to to really binge on borrowing. Now, I think that will change over the next couple of years, but uh, over the short term, it shouldn't be a significant surprise because it's, it's very much in bank deposits. If you look at deposit growth for the banks, it's, it's been well, well in excess of loan growth for the last several months. So in order for us to see loan growth improve, we would probably need to see deposits start to come down. And that, that frankly, hasn't happened yet. Will it happen with these announcements of capital deployment? If they're going to buy back shares, they're going to use cash to do that. They, by definition, become smaller entities. You leverage out what they've got left there onto their balance sheet. And with that, do they preclude growth? Do they limit their growth? Um, no, it, no, they don't. I, I, if, if loan growth does not manifest itself in a meaningful way, ironically, most of these companies will generate capital faster um, because they're not growing their balance sheets because of that lack of loan demand. So I, I don't think that any... Um, pickup in share buyback activity, Tom, has any um, implications for loan growth. David, love catching up. It's good to hear from you. David George there. Robert W. Baird, Senior Research Analyst. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight 
from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.